This is Just a Few Questions. I'm Mark Sims. My guest is Diane M. Stewart. Dr. Stewart is a professor of religion and African-American studies at Emory University. Dr. Stewart is the author of the book, Black Women, Black Love, America's War on African-American Marriage. Dr. Stewart, I'm so happy you are here. I am delighted to be here with you, Mark. Thank you for inviting me. Now, I'm looking at your book, and it's so good. And your book is so important. It's very important. You know, we have this racial reckoning and, and all the protests last year. But And hopefully uh, the book blows up. It has a, a, a longer life. Should, hopefully you do the tours and everything next year. Because this is a most, it's a very important book. So tell us, Dr. Stewart, what is America's War on African-American Marriage? Well, it's a war that begins with the slave trade and slavery, and it continues today. And I'll say this, from the very beginning, Black people's ability to love and form families was heavily impeded by their status as chattel slaves, right? Enslaved Africans did not have the right to marry, although many of them did. They did not have the right to marry, and their marriages were not recognized as legitimate marriages. They faced interference when choosing mates, and there were strong deterrents to even seeking companionship in marriage due to constant physical, emotional, sexual, and reproductive violations they endured. And in studying this issue from the period of slavery, what that did was compel me to create concepts for theorizing, for actually wrapping my head around what I was seeing. And so one of the key concepts around which many of the arguments in the book turns is this concept that I created called forbidden black love. We often think about love being forbidden um, across, you know, age, for example, you know, a 20-year-old with a 60-year-old or love being forbidden across race. We know we have enough experience with that in this country. But we don't think of intraracial love being forbidden. And for all intents and purposes, Mark, what I studied led me to that conclusion. And the way I define forbidden Black love is it is the systems and structures that make love, coupling, and marriage difficult, delayed, or impossible for millions of Black people in America. And and I, I really want to drive that home because, and I, I wrote this book through the eyes of Black women, though my readers constantly tell me that I talk about Black men just as much, that this is a book for Black men as well. But I really wrote it um, from the position of a heterosexual Black woman, and I focus on heterosexual marriage. So... In, 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 in looking at this problem of forbidden black love, I see four major pillars from the period of slavery, and they kept repeating themselves across history to this present day. Now, historians will get on me because a lot of them will say it's not slavery that's responsible for the decline in marriage today, right? Not directly, because they're very, you know, very meticulous about their research. But so it's not that I'm saying slavery is directly responsible for what's happening today. But what I am saying is slavery is the first cause. And I like um, Professor Sadia Hartman's concept of the afterlife of slavery. 
So slavery and the afterlife of slavery are responsible. And we see these four pillars repeating. That is the separation of black marriages and families, which re- begins on the slave ship. Racist, sexist, I, 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 we can say misogynoir, or I like to say racist hyphen sexist, jurisprudence, policies, and legal transactions. That's number two. Number three, sexual and reproductive violence and control. And number four, colorism and phenotypic stratification. These pillars I see as epiphenomena across African-American involuntary presence in this country. And I tease those out from slavery through the period of Jim Crow, when Black women are entering welfare in large numbers in the late 50s and early 60s, um, through mass incarceration, and today in the era of social media dating. I tease these four pillars out and and emphasize different ones in different ways um, throughout the book. And, And that led me to this conclusion. And I call it a war because of the duration of it. We're talking about centuries-long experiences, the duration of it and the intensity of it, the violence of it. And violence is not always physical, although it often is. So, for example, I look at lynching from the perspective of Black love and marriage. We often look at lynching in terms of the violence um, that it does to the Black body and person. But what did it mean when a spouse or potential spouse was taken from a family? What what kind of pain and loss did it cause spouses, uh, children, siblings? So I look at l- a lynching even from the perspective of the family. And, and so um, I end up arguing that this is America's unrecognized civil rights issue. We often think of marriage as just a personal thing. And many authors out there have talked about this, especially with the emphasis on the low rates of marriage for Black women, a lot of authors have talked about this in a personal way. And and people experience marriage personally, so I get it. They want to have personal solutions. And so the self-help approach is very widespread. But ultimately, I'm not interested in the Band-Aid solutions, Mark. I said, how do we solve this problem at its core? And I realized this is a systemic and structural issue that causes us, if we take it seriously, to see it as a civil rights issue. And that, I think, is the unique contribution of the book. I don't know anyone that has argued that. And that's what it is. Fundamentally, millions of Black people who want to be married, especially Black women, who cannot get married through no fault of their own. Dr. Stewart, does, this is an you know, obvious question here, do most Americans fully understand how racism, slavery, of course, racism, capitalism uh, affects African-Americans and our relationships with each other every, to this very day? Do they really, when they see the crime on television and hear the statistics about black women and being unmarried, do they understand this? Is I know you don't, you don't do, you know, you don't do uh, a direct causation all that kind of stuff. But you, it, it, we have it's, it affects us. Capitalism, racism, slavery, it affects us to the to this very day. Do they understand this? Absolutely, no, they don't. No, they don't because the myth, the mythology of American meritocracy is most pronounced. And and I, I will say this, African-Americans have contributed to this. We have had so much hope 
in the promises of an American democracy, that in order to ameliorate our conditions, we've had to focus on that, on that ideal. But if we really look at the reality of democracy, we have lived in a democracy that was comfortable in enslaving African-Americans for I shouldn't say 246 years, but it was a total of 246 years, although we weren't a nation for the full 246 years. But for centuries, we have lived in a democracy that was comfortable with that. We have lived in a democracy where we could not get an anti-lynching law passed, even with the the, the in, intense documentation of how horrific lynchings were in the South. We've lived in a democracy where the federal government has turned a blind eye or supported the massacres and the, 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 the deprivation of Black people of their movable wealth, their immovable wealth, and their intangible wealth. And what I mean by that, I see movable wealth as property and prized possessions, immovable wealth, land and homes, and intangible wealth, the wealth of kinship, the nurturance and care provided through companionship and family. The, the, what, we, what has happened is it, through policies, through an attempt to get a hold on the, the disparities in poverty, the disparities in health, the disparities in educational attainment between blacks and whites or blacks and others in America, all America does is look at the symptoms. They look at the symptoms. They look at the antisocial ways um, many poor and struggling blacks feel um, they um, are are able to try to navigate this system, which is stacked against them. And they say, shame on you, criminals, drug addicts, uh, shame on you. Um, This is something in you. But they don't ask the question. How do the systems and structures that are so anti-Black and so violent against Black people as it relates to housing, education, as it relates to wealth building, um, health care, how do those systems position many poor and under-resourced Blacks to pursue anti-social measures to try to just survive this system? It's not that I'm making an excuse. I I mean, this is about being smart. I'm saying if you dispossess people of resources, they're going to have to survive in some way. And some of those ways will be antisocial. What I'm really saying is if we address the systemic causes of these disparities that we just can't seem to wrap our minds around, if we address those, we will see less and less crime. We will see less and less um, folks, poor folks, um, struggling folks, under-resourced uh, communities um, resorting to desperate and antisocial means to try to eke out an existence in, in this society. So yes, no, most Americans use a deficit model to look at um, Black people, and what's wrong with you, what's wrong with us, um, and we don't ask the question, what has happened to you? What has happened to us? And um, I think many of us really don't know. Do we really understand, Mark, what it means to be deprived of your wealth, of the earnings of your labor for 10 generations? And then when this nation had the chance to to repair 
repair those harms, it did not. Not only did it not do this in 1865, it allowed throughout the South white America to terrorize and brutalize black America. That's why we had the Great Migration. People wouldn't have left their homes at, at, in the numbers of six million if they were not being terrorized, brutalized, and locked into poverty. So people don't understand how that ripples across generations. And keep in mind, Mark, when this was happening, uh, President Abraham Lincoln signed the first Homestead Act during the Civil War, during the second year of the Civil War. And that gave land um, and, and um, opportunities to not just native-born white Americans, but also to immigrant whites um, coming into America. And, and what we see with that act, this is 1865, the same time when the government was unwilling to repair, to, pro to provide reparations for African Americans. African Americans had to figure it out on their own. This is the same time that they're giving massive lands in the western parts of what is now America. Literally, the, uh, to the amount of what would be modern-day Texas and California. And we have more than 1.6 million white immigrant and native-born families that became landowners for little more than a filing fee uh, because of this. And let me say this, just to, just to help your audiences um, um, wrap their minds around this. By the turn of the 21st century, it was estimated that roughly 46 million Americans, that's around a quarter of America's adult population, were descended from those 1.6 million white American families. This is just one example. The estimates are that 4,800 individual black Americans benefited from the Homestead Act compared to the 1.6 million white American families. So the, the disparity is, it's just unbelievable. And most people don't know these things. And they don't realize that the, the, the ability for whites to build wealth over time, um, because of what I call policy entitlements, um, far out distances, the inability for black people to build wealth. In fact, I call it black inherited poverty and wealthlessness, because of the policy violence against blacks and just white terroristic violence against blacks um, over, over the years. So we don't have the data. We don't have the details. Um, and we can trace these kinds of um, inequities and, 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 and the terrorism and the violence of them across time. We can look at the GI Bill. That was another major uh, time and, um, and opportunity that allowed whites to outdistance blacks in massive numbers in terms of wealth building. So this idea of a meritocracy, that everything has been fixed since the Civil Rights Movement. Oh, we had the Civil Rights Act in 64, the Voting Rights Act in 65. That fixed everything. Martin Luther King came, and it's all great now. It's just not true. It created a few advantages for some blacks. And unfortunately, Mark, what that did is it, 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 it provided the exceptionalism, almost like the model minority when people say, well, look, Asians make it. Why don't you make it, African-Americans? It, it says, well, these blacks are making it. Why can't the rest of you make it? And in some respects, that harms 
our ability to look carefully at the devil in the details and understand the gross anti-Black violence and inequities and racism and how they have functioned from the slave period to today. So, and, and we, a lot of us don't look at it. It's so funny, all these anti-affirmative action moves don't look at the fact that white women benefited from affirmative action more than anyone else. And so, so no, people look at symptoms. They look at the way black people are framed as criminals, as drug dealers, as um, dysfunctional and toxic and a danger, um, um, dangerous group that needs to be controlled. That's what they look at. They don't see the free and forced labor that um, incarcerated black persons and others are providing for this capitalistic nation. Um, they don't see um, that black people were not just producers of commodities during slavery. We were also the commodities. It begins there, this racial capitalism that some scholars talk about. So we have been taught to um, to pay attention to symptoms. We have been taught to look at black people with a deficit model of what's what's wrong with you rather than what happened to you. And we have been taught that America is a meritocracy. And if you have the will and the desire and you work hard, you will merit what you deserve. Those That is the greatest mythology ever. Uh, Dr. Stewart, when you got on the roll, I said, no, we, we can't stop her. We got to let her roll. That was phenomenal. I see why you're a great professor, Professor Stewart. That was phenomenal. Uh, we're going to have to end the podcast right here. But I want to tell everyone who think they are woke, who want to be woke or think they are woke, go get Dr. Stewart's book, Black Women, Black Love. Dr. Diane Stewart, thanks for being on the program. Thank you. It was my pleasure, Mark.